0: My name is Vicky. I'm the women's director here at Missio, and it's so great to see all of you guys this morning. Um, So a few weeks ago, we went to Disneyland. I took my kids to Disneyland. We finally bit the bullet. We were like, "Let's do this," Um, and we had planned it out. We were like, "Okay, I know it's going to be crazy." We heard about the app. We set up different things. You know, like we stayed at a hotel nearby so we could walk there and maybe take a break for naps and whatever. And it was great. My kids loved it we loved it. It was awesome. You know, like we got churros, we ate like, you know, pizza, you know, like the whole, the whole thing. Like, uh, we forced our kids onto splash mountain, even though my kid was crying that like, he was kicking and screaming, did not want to be on it. You know, like, you're going to like it. You're going to thank me like in a few years, you know? Um, but then somewhere like, you know, 65% of the way in, I was like, this is really great. This is really fun. I can't wait to go home. (laughs) I can't wait to sleep in my own bed. My back's hurting. My feet's tired. Like my kids are about to lose it at any point. You know, like when sometimes you're like, oh my God, they're starting to like laugh hysterically, like with that crazy look in their eyes, like, oh my gosh, they're going to lose it soon. And I'm like, I love the churros. I love the crazy food, but my body is starting to be like, will you please just hold it like with the grease and all that stuff? Like I was even thinking, I can't wait to go home and cook like a regular meal for myself and sit down and eat like a normal person. And so we finally make it home and I'm like, so nice. Nice to get my kids back into the routine. Nice to eat my own food. Nice to sleep in my own bed. Nice to have a car, you know? And that goes on for a little bit. And after a week and a half of like waking up, getting the kids to bed, uh, like getting the kids up and breaking up some fights and going to work and coming home to a messy house and a bunch of laundry, cleaning that up, making dinner, getting the kids to do whatever work they were supposed to do at school, but decided not to do. And then packing it up, getting them down to sleep, going into the kitchen, cleaning all that stuff up from dinner getting set up for the next day and going to bed exhausted. And then I wake up the next day and it's the same thing over and over again, right? And I was like, oh, when am I going on my next vacation, right? And, and it just continues, right? I will go on my vacation. It's going to be amazing. And they about 65% of the way I'm going to be looking forward to home. And you know, the cycle goes on and on. And I wonder if any of you guys relate with me on that, right? If any of you guys are like, Oh, yeah, I feel that continuous cycle over and over again. And the world says you need to simplify. You just have too many things. You need to just have a gratitude journal. You know, you need to just be more grateful. But I wonder if there's times where I look at that and I'm like, I just feel like, is there more to life than this? Is there more to life than just this? And, you know, I think sometimes we think, you know, I should just be grateful. I should be content in this season of my life. But I think that there is something absolutely right. When we think, is there more to this? Because guess what? God has created us for more. He's created us for more. And when we long for more, he doesn't say, no, you should be content. He says, yep, you should be, you should be longing for more because there is more. Because I've created you for more because there is something that he's created us to fill in our hearts that nothing else can fill. No incredible vacation, no beautiful vista, no perfectly behaved children, no amazing 10 hours of sleep is going to fill that longing in our hearts. Although even as I say the 10 hours of sleep, that sounds pretty good right now, right? But there is something in us when we feel like, is there more to life than this? The answer is absolutely yes. And so if you leave today and you get nothing else and you hear nothing else, I want you to just be like, "I, I was created for more than this and God created for more. And even on my best day, it is only a glimpse of what I was created for. And we have a capacity for such depth and for such joy and for such life that we can't even handle it. Amen. So this morning we are going to sit in John 11 and, um, it is just an interaction that Jesus has with some people that he loves and he's trying to offer them something bigger than what they can even comprehend and imagine. All right. So, um, if you have your Bibles with me, turn with me to John 11. Um, if not, I'm just going to go ahead and summarize the first part of that and help us understand the context a little bit. Now, Jesus has some good friends, Mary and Martha. We've heard of them before. He's had interactions with them before. He's eaten with them. He's hung out with them. They're his buds, all right? And they, they come as a trio, their brother, Lazarus. The three of them are close with Jesus. And at some point, Mary and Martha send a message to Jesus saying, hey, the one you love is sick. The one you love is sick. And I love that he doesn't say, they don't say, Lazarus, remember our brother is sick. He's like, he'll know the one you love is sick. And I just, I love that. Right. That they're so sure that they are loved by this Jesus that they're like, we don't even, we're not even on a name basis anymore. You already know. And they send a message to him knowing that their friend and their teacher and healer is going to come when they send the message. Because they know that they are loved. They know that they are important to him. They know that they are his priority. And so it says that when he hears that, he stops everything, he cancels everything, and he goes towards Bethany. No. It says in every translation he hears the message. So he decides to stay where he's at for another two days. And you're like, wow, there is something real wrong with my translation and what I'm reading, because that does not make sense at all, right? That if you hear a message that someone that you love is sick and they need you, you drop everything and you go, right? But what it says is that Jesus, very intentional, it says he heard it. So therefore he decided to stay for a few more days where he was. And it said that so that they may believe and they may see his glory. By the time he makes it to Bethany, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days and there are mourners everywhere. Martha hears that Jesus is coming and so she runs out to meet him on the road. And the first thing that she says to him is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if you have been here, and I know my math enough to know that I sent you the message, and you had enough time to come, and you didn't, you didn't show up. But if you were here, we wouldn't be here right now mourning. So she doesn't ask it, but she's saying, "Where were you? Why weren't you here?" Right, and all the questions that comes along with that. But then she says. After that, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And she says, even now, even though my brother is in the grave, that if you ask it, God will give it to you, right? And Jesus said to her, "Your brother will rise again." Martha answered, "I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day," right? Katie was up here and said, "Yeah, we the Messiah comes the first time, and they believe that." Messiah will come again, right? We believe that when he comes again, he will rise, uh, raise all his believers with him into heaven, right? And so she speaks about that day. Yeah, I know the resurrection will come again on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the son of God, who is to come into the world. Now we see that Martha, Jesus has has this interaction with Martha. Do you believe these things? Do you believe in my power? Do you believe that in me, you will have life, right? And she's like, I believe you're the Messiah, the son of God, who is to come into the world. I believe that God will do all things for you if you say the word, right? And what he says is, I am the resurrection and the life. And he talks about eternal life. But in John 17, this is the essence of eternal life, right? In John 17, Jesus defines it as that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is essence of eternal life is not a place and a destination, it is actually the never-ending knowing of God the Father and God the Son. For God so loved the world that at the cost of his son's life, he brought us into an everlasting knowing, admiring, loving, enjoying of himself and Jesus. His love for us and, and life with him is not sparing us from pain and suffering. The love of God is the gift of himself, and the greatness of that love increases in proportion to the greatness of his glory. The love of God is the gift of himself. Martha thinks that the resurrection is about location, right? The understanding of resurrection is about destination, that our bodies would be raised with the Messiah in the second coming. And Jesus is saying, no, the resurrection is me. I am the good news. You get me. Right. It is relationship with me. I am standing right here and I am the resurrection and the life. This is the good news right here. Heaven becomes good news because I'm there. Right, <laughs> Wherever I am there, you have life and resurrection. Right. It is in your relationship and knowing me that you are loved. There is nothing better. Now, in that is a very thick and confusing theology that is very hard for us to wrap our minds around. Right? Okay, okay. So eternal life is knowing Jesus and God. It's not heaven. Resurrection and the life is Jesus, not a destination, not a place, not Him doing stuff for us. What does that mean? Right? So, you know, as I'm trying to think, okay, how's a way that we can understand this? Um, I was just thinking, okay, what if you met someone? What if you knew someone who's like your best friend, like times 10? right? Where they just got you. They understood you. They knew that you were hungry before you knew you were hungry, right? Like they started laughing at your jokes, even though nobody else started was laughing at your jokes, right? They have seen you at your worst and they love you and adore you regardless, even because of it, right? They have gone into the darkest, deepest places with you and have walked with you and have cared for you and have carried you even in the highest, most incredible spaces, right? And when you're with that person, you feel safe, you feel known, you feel free. You're like, I don't have to be anything here. I don't need to say anything specific. There is silence and it's all good, right? Like there is an understanding here that I don't have to explain myself. And there's no insecurity in this space, in this place, in this relationship. Now imagine that he's saying, well, you know what? I have to, uh, I have to go to Bakersfield and, and pick up my grandmother's RV. Do you want to come? Um, and I don't know if you guys know where Bakersfield is in California. We joke about how it's like the armpit of California, um, on, or the West coast. And it's, it's not a destination spot at all. Right. But you're like, yes, I'll jump to the opportunity because what it means is I get to hang out with you and I don't care where I go because as long as I'm with you, it's going to be a good trip. As long as I'm with you, I, you know, it's, I don't care if I'm going to Rome or Bakersfield, right? Like it's going to be amazing because I get to be with you. And that's what I is maybe a snippet of how I understand what Jesus is talking about here is It is that we get to be with him and him as the company is way better than the destination, right? And wherever we go with this person, it's going to be way better than any place that we go with anybody else. And so what Jesus is saying here is, I got you, Martha. I got you, right? I'm the resurrection. No matter whether you die or you live, you get me. I love you and I will never abandon you. And that's what I promise you. That's what my love looks like for you. It is good news for both the living and the dead. Regardless of resurrection now or later, Jesus got us. Now, where am I? Okay, so he goes on and he sits with Mary. He talks to the crowds and then he gets to the tomb. And in verse 38, He says, all right, we're here. Take away the stone. And so if Martha has said, oh yeah, I believe all these things. I know that you're the Messiah. I know that God will do anything for you. Then she must be like chomping at the bit. Oh, we're at the tomb. He has to move the stone. Let's do this. Let's do this today. Right? But what happens? She's like, don't do it. Don't do it. It's, it's stinky in there. Biology is doing its work. His body has started to decompose and it's starting to smell in there don't roll away the stone. I have the passage up here, um, verse 38 through 45. Um, Yeah. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and the stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time, there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Thank you. As much as Martha's theology believed that he could do it, when it came down to it, she was like, no, no, you can't do this. You can't do this. And not only was it, "Ah, oh, we can't do this, but I almost believe that there was a sense of her feeling like. I don't want to be dragged through this again. I don't want to, ho- don't make me hope in this again. Don't stir up my hope and my desire for my brother to live again, because I've been mourning here for four days and I, I don't want to open that door, right? Like, don't open this again with me, Jesus. She's tired of hoping. She's tired of thinking that maybe Jesus is going to do something here, Right. And yet they move the stone and Jesus does this incredible miracle, which by the way, in his three years of ministry, this is the only time where he raises someone from the dead, right? And he calls out Lazarus. He calls out in a loud voice, come on out. And everyone sees, there's no question that Lazarus has been dead for four days, right? Everyone sees him come to life calls out the things that are dead, the things that we have given up on, closed the door on, has said, this has the final word. He calls it out and says, no, I have the final word. I will call you out and you will live. And then he calls the spectators to take a second step of faith, to take off his grave clothes and let him go. And they are not merely spectators, right? Jesus invites them into have, to have action with their faith too, right? I think sometimes we think, You know, we're passive observers of God's miracles, right? We'll sit back and if Jesus decides to do a miracle, then we'll just go ahead and see it. But if you read through scripture, you'll see that most of the time we are invited to take steps towards the miracles that God wants to do, right? The Israelites had to step into the Jordan before it split open like the Red Sea. Joshua had to march everyone around the walls of Jericho before it fell down. The servants had to fill large vats of hose water in hopes that it would turn into wine at the wedding at Cana, right? There are no mere spectators. We are all invited to take steps of faith along with the miracles that God wants to do. Now, I will admit and confess that this week, as I knew that this was the passage I was going to teach on, that I struggled with it because we here are no strangers To loss and grief and death, right? Most of us here have experienced intense grief of losing brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and loved ones, right? And, And I have lost my sister and we have prayed for healing and we have hoped against hope. We have invited communities to pray with us that this might not be the end, right? I've struggled in the tension of this passage because even as I know that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, there are my own questions of, if you could do it there, why not here? If you could do it there, why not in my situation? Why didn't you heal her? Why didn't you raise him? Where were you, right? I hear Martha's voice as I read this passage. If you had been here, she would not have died. If you had shown up, the way that you did here, we wouldn't be in the scenario right now, right? And just like with Mary and Martha, when Lazarus passes away, it isn't just their beloved brother that passes away, right? As a woman in this culture, their identity and their value and their access is connected to the man of the house, if they're married or if they're still in their father's house or their brother, right? So with Lazarus dies, A lot of things, not just their brother, their dreams and their hopes, their understanding of how life was going to work out, their future with their brother, right? What they were going to do together, take trips, you know, to the Jordan River together with their kids, right? All these different things die, right? And I think that those of us who have lost someone, we understand that, right? It is not just that person that dies, but it is all the things that we had just kind of counted on, kind of thought was assumed in our future with those people that also passes away, right? My kids will never have a doting aunt that teaches them to bake, right? Like other aunts, other situations, but not her, right? That dies with her. And so even though I know that knowing Jesus does not mean that there is no death and no sorrow and no pain, I don't want to be tone deaf to the fact that, man. With this passage comes some hard wrestling with Jesus, right? Um, my, I grew up with uh, parents that fought all the time. Um, and my dad grew up um, in a very traditional Chinese home where the patriarch, the, the dad decided everything and everyone else had to submit to it. No questions asked, right? Right. He had to be right. And if you disagreed, you just mumbled in the back by yourself where he couldn't hear you. My mom grew up pretty much without a dad and she learned to be very resourceful, learned to be dependent on no one. Right. She's very headstrong. And she, um, she and my dad married, you know, like opposites attracting. And then came the tension Right. In addition, they grew up in a time where women were starting to go back to school, get jobs, learn to have voice in, in in marriages where it was more equal than had ever been. And so there was constant fighting. Constant fighting about power, constant fighting about who had to say constant power of of how they would spend their money and, and what it would look like to raise the kids. Um, and we as the kids just learned to either hide when they were fighting or a lot of times we were caught in the middle needing to mediate and counsel them. I remember in middle school, one time my parents called a family meeting and they said, hey, we're thinking of getting a divorce. What do you guys think? And they put the decision in our court, which, you know, that is extremely unhealthy, right? But that's what happened. And we had to convince them to stay together. We had to convince them to say, please don't get a divorce. Please keep the family together, um, at least until we've all graduated from high school. And so they decided to continue trying and cohabitating, right? Um, One of the biggest tensions was actually that my mom was a Christ follower and my dad wasn't. He was fine with us going to church. He was fine with us getting involved in different things and believing different things than he did, but he never wanted to be a part of it. And he never wanted it to conflict with our family time together. And so my mom was in this really hard tension where she felt like our family was kind of split, right? And she felt like, well, I don't want to get a divorce because I don't want to do the wrong thing by my faith, but I really am having a hard time finding myself on the same level with this person. And constantly she was feeling the conflict of that. And I'm sure my dad was as well. Right. So, after I graduated from college, my parents um, threatened divorce. And at some point, again, again, numerous conversations of like, I think we're going to get a divorce this time. I think we're going to get a divorce this time. And again and again, my sister and I got them together and said, Please don't. Please try again and again. So um, it was right around, right after Birch and I got engaged, my parents said, Well, we decided that we're going to separate, we're going to get a divorce. Um, And it, you know, even though there were times in my life where I felt like I wish they just got a divorce because this is, they clearly do not like each other. It is so stressful for all of us. Every single time we go home, the one of them complains about what the other person did, right? Like that is our whole childhood, our whole life as a family. Maybe they should just get a divorce altogether and just be done with it. But when they finally said it and they said, listen, this is it. You guys are all grown. You guys are all out of college. We're just, we're done here. We felt devastated. We were devastated. It felt like even though it was inevitable at the same time, it felt like, Maybe those little pieces of tape that we've been trying to hold it together with will be enough to kind of hold them on till the end. And when it wasn't, even though it was inevitable, we were like, what have we been doing this for years for? Right. My mom moved into an apartment. My dad was living in another apartment. um, And they decided to sell our childhood home. Um, I remember a conversation with Birch where I was like, we just got engaged. And here's this thing. Do you think that this is a sign that maybe we shouldn't get married? That we just have it in our DNA that this is not going to work, right? We, I mean, obviously we decided, no, we're going to go forward. But, um, <laughs> but there was this sense um, that God was saying, I'm not done here. It's not too late. It's not that just because I haven't done something yet doesn't mean that I'm not going to do something. So it just led me to pray. I began to pray. I asked friends to pray. I prayed that they would seek counseling. I prayed that my dad would be willing to hear and compromise, which he had never done. He had never asked our opinion about anything. You know, I prayed that it wasn't too late for my mom to forgive and start over. I prayed for a reset, a real, real reset. And then my dad called me and said, Hey, I was talking to your two aunts, his two younger sisters who are both Christians And they suggested that maybe we should go into marriage counseling. What do you think? I was like shocked. What what do you mean? What do you think? Are you asking me like what I think about something? And then I said, I think counseling would be a great idea, but only if you're willing to change. Don't waste your time on counseling unless you're willing to change. And he said, okay, I'll think about it. They were separated for a year, a little more than a year. They were separated on our wedding day. And then at some point, they decided to give it another try. They started having dinners together. He started giving her some more control over their finances. She made an effort in forgiving him and starting over. And these last 17 years have been a rebuilding of their marriage. Last year, you can show the picture now. We celebrated 50 years of them being married. Now they're old. My dad is mostly deaf. My mom has all sorts of health problems. And the other day she was reflecting to me, I understand now why God told me to stay because it would have been so sad for your dad not to be able to hear anything and to be completely cut off from the rest of the world and not have any interactions with anyone or any interpreter standing there being on his side. It would be so sad. And what would he know about who God is if I left? And he's like, and what about me? Who would drive me to all my appointments to the hospital who would take care of me when I was stuck in bed and, and couldn't see because I had my eye surgeries, you know? And she's like, neither of us are in great condition, but together we were piecing things together. You don't have to worry about us. We're piecing it together. That's her reflection. And I also wonder, right? Like, you know, he, he is so stubborn. My dad and my mom is so stubborn. It is a miracle that none of that got passed down to me. (laughs) But I wonder if even part of the softening of his heart towards God, even though he's not quite there yet, was that if he's not willing to soften to the people around him, how is he ever going to soften to God and be okay about the fact that he might be wrong about some very big things, right? The other day we were having dinner um, and my mom and I were ready to start eating and he's just sitting there waiting. He's like, shouldn't we pray? Shouldn't we pray first? I think God is doing a big work in him. He's 82. I've prayed for him my whole life. And I just wonder, wow, was God waiting to do this miracle for my dad through this thing that died? so that he may be softened so that my mom may be softened right now i know that some of you guys hear that and you're like well that's not a miracle vicky that's a really good marriage counselor <laughs> and she was she was but if you had been in my life my whole life you would know what a miracle it was that this divorce was completely inevitable right I had stopped praying for the relationship. It felt impossible that they were ever going to be able to make it. And when they called the divorce thing, it was like, yeah, this has been pointing in this direction for years and years, right? Every conversation, every single interaction had been pointing in that and it died. And then God brought it back to life. We had put a stone over it for a year. And then God said, let's open that puppy back up. Let's do the miracle now. And I don't ever understand his timing. I don't ever understand his reasons, right? But I'm so grateful he did. I'm so grateful that he raised something that I know was very dead and now is very much alive. What are the things that have died in your life that God wants to raise? What are the things that we have decided? This is just how it's always going to be. I will always struggle with this. I'm never not going to feel sad or not enough. I've given up praying for this. It's never going to turn around. I will never have this family that I hoped for. I will never see this person coming to know Jesus. Why pray anymore? I will never be healed of this thing. What are the things that we've just decided are dead? And we've rolled the stone over and we said, let's just move on. I'm done. Let's just move on. And Jesus is saying, let's go and roll that stone away. And I can imagine your conversation with him just as, because it would be like mine. Can we, should we do this? Because I don't really want to do this because it's going to be real stanky up in there. Right? I left all my frustration and my disappointment and whatever. And then it's just been stewing, but let's just close it and pretend it's not there. And Jesus is like, do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life and that I am the restorer of all things? Do you believe that to be true? Because I'm coming here and I want to raise some things from the dead. Right. We long for more. We long. We were created to see resurrection guys. We were created to see things restored to their rightful place in wholeness and healing and depth and love. And somehow we've settled for, well, you know, that was Old Testament stuff. That was New Testament stuff. We're living in the modern day where we just need to be okay. We just need to muster through and just hope that, you know, like we do okay. and We don't ruin our relationships. No, but the reality is Jesus wants to heal us. And Jesus wants to do some miracles amongst us. And he's inviting us back to hope. He's inviting us back to pray. He's inviting us back to the places where we say, okay, let's roll the stone away and let's do this, Jesus. I've been waiting for you. I've been waiting for you. Let's do this, right? I don't know. I don't know what he's doing, but I know that this is the glory of Jesus. Jesus raised Lazarus because he is the resurrection. He is the arrival in history of God's final glorious renovation of all things, including our bodies. Yes, our bodies will be resurrected. Lazarus' body was resurrected, but think of all the other things that were resurrected that day. Think of all the things that become resurrected as we look to this story and we look and say, whoa, I didn't know that was possible. Believers, you will be raised from the dead and shine like the sun in the kingdom of your father. Lazarus is a preview of your resurrection. And we see the story as a reflection and a window into that. I think today we do communion, yes? No. Okay. So that email was not, okay. We here do communion once a month. Not today though, apparently. Um, And I do think that why we do that is because we get reminded that Jesus invites us to the table and he says, this is the good stuff. Let's sit down together and watch life come to work, right? It is interesting that the wine and the bread, they all use, they both are based on the act of fermentation, right? And if you know anything about fermentation, it is basically something that was partially dead and smells pretty dead, right? But what is happening chemically is life is happening. And it produces this thing that is beyond what it originally was, grape juice or yeast and sugar and flour. And it turns into something that is completely different and so much tastier and so much better than what we know. That is the beauty of resurrection. It is not that you become the same as you were before, but you become like super Lazarus, right? Like you become way more, way better. I look at my parents' ma- marriage, way better than what is more. They're both softened, they are both more loving and kind to one another than they've ever been in their lives. I wonder what it is that Jesus is wanting to resurrect in us, in our community, in our individual lives. So let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that you did this on this day in Bethany and that you waited. We might not understand your timing. We might not understand your ways, but we know that you are for us and you got us, that you are the resurrection and life. You are the gift. And in that, we can trust that whatever you do, it will be for our good, even if we don't get it. Father, I pray that you would um, show us what in our hearts we have decided to give up on, what you've decided what we've decided that we're never going to feel that again or we're never going to be healed of that we're we're never going to be able to let go of this thing and god you invite us into more because we were created for more and god i i pray that we would have the courage and the faith to roll away the stone and allow you to get into the the, the brokenness and the pain and the disappointment and the grief and allow you to do something really beautiful there. God, you, you are the resurrection and the life. So God, I pray that we would live like that is true. I pray that we would pray like that is true. I pray that we would talk and lean on you like that is true. God, would you transform us today and always? We pray this in your name. Amen.